Hello, and welcome to Who Runs That? Today, we'll be talking to the CEO of the Carnival Corporation. Arnold Donald oversees a whole bunch of cruise lines, with ships that range in size from a few hundred passengers to several thousand, and services that go from affordable to ultra-luxury. In our conversation, he talks about some of the trends in cruising, explains how a business insight led his company to save a lot of money on buying arugula, and recounts some of the challenges he's faced in becoming one of just a handful of black CEOs of big, publicly traded companies. After the break, Arnold Donald, CEO of Carnival. Hello and welcome to Who Runs That? Today on the show, we'll be talking about the Carnival Corporation, the uh, cruise line company. We've got Arnold Donald, CEO of Carnival Corporation. Arnold, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you, Seth. It's a pleasure to be on. So I think when people hear Carnival, they think of maybe one kind of cruise. Maybe they think about a big white ship in the Caribbean and it's full of families with young children. But you've got a bunch of different cruise lines under your corporate umbrella. So maybe to start, you can explain uh, the difference between cruising on one of your more luxurious brands versus a more affordable cruise and, and how the ships differ and the demographics of the passengers might differ. Well, thank you, Seth. Yeah, as you mentioned, we have nine world-leading cruise line brands. Um, and they run the gamut from mass contemporary, like in the U.S., the Carnival brand everybody's so familiar with, our namesake brand, and over in continental Europe, Costa. And those are mass contemporary brands, you know, great experiences, um, but catered for people who really love being social. You know, they want to um, either be the life of the party or around people who are the life of the party, or just generally, you know, kind of want to connect with others. Um, guests they don't know, crew they don't know, et cetera. The crew is actually involved in a lot of the activities with the guests. Uh, that type of cruising, great experience. Uh, then we also have um, some premium lines. Uh, Holland America, our European kind of classic line base here in North America, but sails the, the world. And um, Princess, uh, so the difference between the two of those, um, Holland America, uh, as I mentioned, is kind of classic European. Princess is more kind of um, Southern California chic, um, uh, Hong Kong luxury. Um, both very engaging brands that take their guests all over the world. Holland America, uh, their theme is to savor the journey. And Princesses is a little more active, and theirs is to come back new. Uh, then we have our ultra-luxury brand here in the U.S., Seaborn. And Seaborn is um, ships of um, as small as 400 guests to as large as 600 but you really feel like you're on your own yacht. It's almost one crew member for every guest. Uh, super ultra luxury, real premium experience, also sailing all over the globe. And then over in the UK, we have um, Cunard, which has the iconic, the only ocean liner at sea in the world, uh, Queen Mary II, plus two other ships, Queen Victoria and Queen Elizabeth, uh, and very you know traditional British kind of base type sailing, um, you know, just fabulous experience also traversing the globe. And, of course, uh, the Queen Mary II uh, has those transatlantic crossings between New York and Southampton, um, which is on lots of people's bucket list. So what are some of the big trends in cruising these days? I remember when, when there was this big switch from going to from assigned seating at meals to then you could sit wherever you want because people didn't want to be stuck sitting with the same people at every meal. What are some of the changes like that that are happening now in cruising? Well, you know, cruising has always been a very differentiated market. We're small. There's maybe 27 million 
people that will cruise this year across not just our brands but all the brands in the industry. Um, almost one out of every two sail with us. So we have the vast majority of those. But if you think about it, it's small. Uh, I think Las Vegas has an estimated 42 million tourists a year. I think Orlando may be up to something like 70 million. I'm not sure on those numbers, but something like that. So you can see the entire global cruise industry is smaller than some individual cities that are tourism destinations. And so, you know, we're small. Uh, and, and as you look at trends, even though we're small, we're very differentiated. So there's hardly anything new. Open dining, assigned dining, those have been around for a long time. I, I would say what's new uh, is just the continued drive towards personalization and customization of the experience for the individual that's cruising. Um, and Seaborne, we get that through the crew to guest ratio. So they know your name, they know your preferences, et cetera. Um, and some of the larger, the brands with more guests, uh, there, you know, we're doing it other ways. And in our case, one way we're doing it is with our ocean platform. And that includes our ocean medallion, which is sort of like a, a little disc you can wear on a necklace or on your wrist or carry in your pocket. It's kind of your identifier. There are sensors all over the ship. And so every crew member is constantly connected with you wherever you are on the ship. They know your name, they know your schedule, your preferences, they know what drinks you like to have. If you order a drink and have to step away because you wanted to see a whale, you're in Alaska off the bow of the ship, they can bring the drink to you. you know, so increased personalization and customization is what's really new and where the evolution is going in cruise and in travel in general. So around the time that you took over, Carnival was in a bit of a rough patch. You had a, a real tragedy with the Costa Concordia, which ran aground near Italy. And then there was this so-called poop cruise. The media called it the poop cruise, where you had a ship lose power in the Gulf of Mexico. And there were some uncomfortable conditions for the passengers. But you've had some very successful years since then on the balance sheet. So I'm wondering what you think were the most important elements of that turnaround and some of the more important decisions that you made in, in the early years that you took over to kind of effectuate that turnaround? Yeah, I think externally the most important thing was to continue to expose what a great vacation experience cruise really is. You know, 99.999% of everybody's experience who cruises uh, is a great experience. And so step one externally was just exposing those who hadn't cruised, including lots of the media and others, to what cruising really was. So we, uh, with Roger Frizzell's support, uh, who's my chief communications guy for the corporation, you know, we sat on a mission to just expose uh, the media and the general public uh, to cruise in a bigger way. Uh, we now have five TV shows through our ocean um, uh, platform, our network. We have our own digital network uh, we have five shows here in the U.S. We have two in the U.K. We've had shows in Italy and other places. And all we're doing is just exposing those who haven't cruised to what the cruise experience, you know, uh, really is. Internally, what we did was we have the nine World Leading Cruise Line brands. Um, we're far and away the largest leisure travel company in the world. And the bottom line was we weren't behaving that way because the brands acted independently. So all of that combined... I think has um, somewhat helped power uh, the success you've seen in terms of financial results and ultimately results for our shareholders in the market. Can you give an example of how you, you created more synergy between your lines as opposed to when they were operating sort of in silos? How, what's an example of how that benefited you? 
I, I give you a, a fun example we like to use, which is arugula. So we had um, every brand uses arugula, in, you know, in their serv- uh, food services, and we had seven different contracts basically with the same arugula distributor, all at different prices. <laughs> and just by getting the brands together to talk, you know, they realized <laughs> that <laughs> they were all buying the same product from the same group. And so it's uh, stuff as simple as that. Similarly, um, you know, we were the largest purchaser or fifth largest purchaser of air travel in the world, uh, but we weren't behaving that way because the brands were doing it independently. And by having them communicate, collaborate, coordinate, get together, put one, you know, requests for bid out, um, obviously we, we gain efficiencies that way. But more importantly than the cost side of the equation is the creativity. Uh, when you have nine, you know, talented teams of people, if you can harness that and have them work on similar challenges together, they will out-solution what any one group would do. So let's get a little into some of the costs of running a cruise line. I would imagine you've got fuel costs, you've got shipbuilding costs, you've got the labor costs for your staff. Where are some of those levers at as we speak today and where are they headed? What are the, what are the things you're able to rein in? What are some of the costs that have been expanding? Well, of course, you know, fuel is um, one of the singularly most, you know, the greatest expenses we have. And um, fuel prices, not much you can do about that. They go up, they come down. Um, you know, we don't believe in hedging. And so, um, you know, that's just something we live with. But what we do believe in is, um, you know, environmental stewardship. Uh, We want to reduce the amount of fuel we use, so consumption. And we've been very successful at reducing over the past um, several years, almost 27% reduction, same basis, fuel utilization. Uh, The new ships, we have 22 on order, are far more fuel efficient, but far more efficient overall. Uh, than existing ships, and we've added uh, environmental, in fact, we've added some advanced air quality systems on the existing fleet uh, to reduce emissions, but also have done lots of itinerary uh, planning studies, gone back in, look at our engines and fine-tuning those, looked at utilization in HVAC and lighting on the ships, et cetera, um, the flow of people, um, what we do when we're in port, et cetera, all of those things have contributed tremendously to reduction in fuel requirements, and, and we continue on that course and have actually exceeded our um, emission targets uh, we set for 2020. We exceeded them um, back in 2017, I believe I'm accurate, and, uh, and so we set new higher standards going forward uh, to continue progress there. So that's a big area of cost. You mentioned you don't do hedging. I know some airlines hedge with fuel in order to even out those costs. For the lay listener who might not exactly know what hedging means, can you explain what does that mean and and how come you don't do it? Yeah, basically um, hedging is a way to lock in on a price so that you're not suffering from the fluctuations in prices in the marketplace. Um, The reason we don't do it is there's a cost to doing that. And we believe over time that on balance, while it allows for some easier reporting along the way, the reality is, you know, you're going to lock in sometimes and the price is going to fall and you wish you hadn't locked in. Other times you're going to lock in on the price and you're going to be happy because the prices will rise and you won't have to pay the higher price. But over time that evens out. And it's the fees that you have to pay to do that that in the end is the economic loss. And so we believe that, you know, we um, can absorb from a capital management standpoint in a cash flow standpoint, we can absorb fluctuations in fuel prices um, to a great extent. 
and therefore we at this point in time see no reason you know to hedge and you know we we will suffer the ups and down of fuel and also currency is another one that that you know in a global business like ours uh, with nine brands all over the world um, currency is another one that we t we don't hedge um, and so you know that's just a philosophy in the past we have done something called cashless collar Seth which um, basically um, you know, was a floor and a ceiling so as long as the price stayed within a band we were okay if it went outside the band we'd suffer some losses um, but the bottom and we only did that to protect against big spikes in fuel prices when we felt we had a lot of capital commitments for new ships and other requirements and we could be exposed financially should the fuel price spike and put us back in the market to borrow money at a time when maybe the market you know wasn't um, very kind to borrowers um, but given our current uh, debt equity ratio which is very strong our balance sheet is super strong um, you know we feel we have lots of room to move and there's no reason at this point in time uh, to protect against those spikes that we can handle it from a capital requirement standpoint for the business. Um, but we evaluate that all the time, and ultimately it's a board decision, and uh, we constantly evaluate it. We've been a, in a really strong economy the last couple of years, and I'm sure that that has been great for the cruise industry, but there's some signs that the economy might be starting to slow down. So I'm wondering, how do you prepare for a downturn when you're in a business that's uh, tied in a lot of ways to the discretionary budgets of people? Well, we're definitely uh, an elective thing to do. There's no question about that. Nobody has to take a cruise. You take one because you want to. Um, but the, look, the bottom line is we're a global business. And every year, every year, there's economic malaise somewhere. Every year, there's geopolitical tension somewhere. You know, every year, um, you know, there's unfortunately disease scares somewhere. Every year, there's hurricanes, typhoons, and cyclones. You know, those things are a normal part of our business. And there actually is very little correlation between economic vitality and growth in crews. And the reason is because we're so small. You know, we're very small. Our ships sail full. We can't grow very fast because there's only so many shipyards to build ships. I mentioned to you the 27 million people cruising globally and estimated in 2018, um, which makes us the size maybe of smaller than a lot of you know, single city tourism destinations. Um, and so because we're small and we're global and we're differentiated and we're a much better value than the equivalent land-based vacation, we tend not to get whipsawed too much with economic, you know, variations. Uh, and so uh, we probably are affected, but because we're so small, there's still plenty of people to do what we need them to do to help our business grow. And so we tend not to see it. In any given market, you might see some trends change in onboard revenue spend or something like that. But because we're such a great value, often um, people will refer to our business as being recession resilient. Uh, because as uh, people have less money to spend, they look for bargains and deals. They still want to go on vacation. And they feel their money can go a lot further on a cruise than they can on an equivalent land-based vacation. So they may actually you know, take a cruise um, because uh, they're in, uh, you know, more of an economic, you know, conservative mindset. I've been on a bunch of cruises, and, and one thing I noticed that can happen when a big cruise ship arrives at a small port is it can really overwhelm that immediate area for a few hours, and it can become this dominating economic force right around the pier. And 
a lot of the passengers don't necessarily venture too far inland or see too much beyond the harbor. So I wonder if you as a company think about integrating your passengers with your destinations and letting there be these more organic experiences beyond just the pier and and how you think about that and and whether there's anything you can do to affect that dynamic. Oh, absolutely. So first of all, there's two mantras uh, in crews that I believe are true. Happy crew, happy guests. If the crew isn't happy, it's going to be hard for the guests to have a good time. Second one is happy locals, happy guests. If the locals in the destination aren't happy and aren't welcoming to the guests, again, the guests are going to have not that great an experience. And so it's very important that we're always sensitized uh, to the locals in terms of, you know, that's where they live. I mean, they're not just visiting, they live there. (laughs) And so how it affects their quality of life really matters. And we try to work with locals, whether it's a small destination or a large destination, to make sure cruise is integrated in a way where it works, you know, for the quality of life that they've decided they want, you know, for their home place, their native home. And uh, so that's step one. Uh, Step two is, of course, you want to give guests the opportunity to really experience the destination. Um, uh, Some of the places you go, though, you, you may have guests who are really going on the cruise and they're really looking for beach and sun and fun. And, um, and they've been to the destination, you know, eight, nine, 10, 11 times. So they may not want to go to the museum they've gone to twice already or whatever. And they may choose to stay near the port or even stay on the ship or just go to the beach. Um, and that's okay. It's their vacation. They should be able to do, you know, what they want. So, you know, those are all variables. We go to over 700 ports a year around the world, you know, with our 106 plus ships. Uh, so that's a lot of ports a lot of very different types of experience in different situations. But the thing that stays true is happy locals, happy guests. So we have to make sure wherever it is that what we're doing is resonating with the locals in that community. And then our guests have the opportunity then to have the time uh, to build lifelong memories and have a great time. Okay, I wanna ask some questions about you. I read that you grew up in some relatively humble socioeconomic circumstances in the Ninth Ward in New Orleans. And I wonder if you could describe just a little bit about what your upbringing was like. Yeah, you know, to be honest with you, as we used to say at the, uh, from where I'm from, um, is, yeah, I grew up dirt poor, as they say. But the reality was I didn't know that. I was a kid and my life was great. You know, my parents were loving. I had um, uh, four siblings by birth, and then I had 27 foster brothers and sisters over time that my mom and dad reached out to help. You know, some of them um, were with us, you know, a few days or a few weeks, and some were with us for a year or longer. And um, so I always had lots of kids to play with. Uh, We didn't have a lot of money, but we had a lot of love and a lot of creativity. And, you know, growing up as a kid, I was really poor, but I didn't really realize it. it didn't matter, you know. And so uh, I grew up at a time when, um, in the Deep South in New Orleans, um, when things were segregated. There were, you know, separate bathrooms, separate water fountains, you know, all that nonsense. And I grew up in that time, so society was telling me as a young black child that I I couldn't be, I couldn't do, um, I was inferior, I was second class, you know, whatever, all that stuff. Um, But I was fortunate enough, I had loving parents, I grew up at the right time. You know, the times make the person more than the person makes the times. So I grew up in the civil rights movement. I grew up in man going to the moon, and, you know, and all that. And so all things seemed possible. 
And I went to a great high school that instilled in us counter to what society was telling us, you know, that we could be and do anything and everything. It was a high school of excellence, and they told us three times a day, gentlemen, prepare yourselves. You're going to run the world. You mentioned a lot of positive external influences on you that helped shape you. Uh, but it seems like even when you were really young, you had a lot of internal ambition to be a high-ranking corporate executive. And so if you could do just a little personal reflection, I wonder where you think that ambition came from and, and what about your personality drove you to get where you are and, and what kinds of, if you want to call them superpowers, did you did you have inside that have kind of have helped you achieve what you've achieved? Yeah, you know, I, I don't know where it came from, but I suspect um, it came from a lot of positive reinforcement. So my uh, youngest sister, who's three years older than me, wanted to be a teacher. And so before I ever went to school, she taught me to read and write in her school. I was her only student. Uh, read and write and do simple math. And so by the time I went to elementary school, they thought I was some kind of genius or something. But really, I just had the original Head Start program, I guess, you know, and uh, before Head Start was created. And so then I, I got a lot of positive reinforcement, you know, because people thought I was smart. They treated me like I was smart. And, uh, and that positive reinforcement, I'm sure, fed me. And then I loved board games. I loved playing Risk and Monopoly and that kind of stuff. And, and that got me into thinking about business. And, you know, I started a little sweet shop at home. My sisters were you know, when it was hot in the summer, too lazy to walk down to the little sweet shop themselves to buy the candidate wanted, so they would send me. So I figured out, hey, if I borrow some money from my dad and build some inventory, I could double the price, make money on this, and, you know, cut down on my, my labor activity going back and forth to the store <laughs> for them. And uh, little stuff like that. It worked out great until my, that same sister that taught me so well found my inventory and ate it all. But anyway, so, so I don't know where all this came from, but that's how I started out. And then, um, then my high school, I'm sure, uh, I don't know how they did it or when they did it, because nobody in my family was in business. Nobody was working for a large corporation or anything like that. But I decided my junior year in high school, I wanted to be a general manager in a Fortune 50 science-based global company. Now, how I came up with that, I really don't even know to this day. And I can guarantee you, when I was a junior in high school and started mapping out the plan, I didn't really know what that meant. And um, I worked the first summer after my junior year in high school with Exxon as a project engineer. I actually was Humble Oil Company at that time um, as a project engineer offshore district. And that fed my interest in corporations and business. And then I worked every summer thereafter. They changed their name to Exxon. And um, uh, up through, um, you know, a good portion of my collegiate career before I finally took a summer job with Monsanto, which became my... Um, first permanent employer. And so um, anyway, that, that's just the story. But exactly where it all came from, I'm not sure. I think it was a combination of the times I was living in, the positive reinforcement from a high school, um, playing some board games that got me interested a little bit in, in business, going off to some prep schools in the summer, again, because of my high school. I went to Phillips Andover Academy after my freshman year for a summer, and then Phillips Exeter Academy after my um, uh, sophomore year for the summer and uh, took courses there, met people who were in, you know, who parents were in business and um, got exposed to, you know, some business leaders in those places. I studied econ one summer, economics one summer and found that fascinating and interesting. And so all those things cumulatively probably led to the shaping. And then I was always driven. 
that I was and and I was always planning and, and a lot of that came from the school too but it, it pre-existed before my high school and so I planned out my career and then I executed it and lived it and it's you know I, I don't advise everybody has to do that or anything but it kind of worked for me you're one of a very small handful of black CEOs of, of big public companies. And I, I want to ask, first of all, if you think you faced any unique challenges in your career because of your race. Oh, absolutely. I, I think everybody faces unique challenges because we're all different individuals. But uh, there certainly were challenges I faced um, uh, being black. Um, there's no question about that. And um, and at times continue to face. But um but definitely early on, there's absolutely no question. I, there were, when I was in sales, there were buyers who didn't want to meet with me because I was black. Um, you know, there were um, managers and companies I've worked at, you know, that had negative attitudes. Uh, you know, you'd walk in a room and people presumed you were there because you were a token or something, not because you knew what you were doing. They treated you that way until you could prove otherwise. And so all that was real and probably continues to be real to different degrees for different individuals. Um, but similarly, you know, I could say that for women, you know, at, at, in, in business um, back in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and even today, um, you could say that if you were in Malaysia and, um, you know, you were Malay versus Indian versus Chinese, you know, there are issues, Thailand, I mean, anywhere in the world you go, you know, there's biases, preconceived notions. People will judge you superficially. Um, you know, th that's unfortunately a part of human nature that, you know, hopefully we're all working to evolve beyond. Um, but it's sure, there's no question about it. And the ability to rise through all that is much more difficult, a higher degree of difficulty, you know, if you're that different. Now, on the other hand, you know, being different also has its advantages, you know, and, um, you know, people who are sensitized will work harder to help you be successful because they realize that, you know, those obstacles exist and, and that, you know, you're unusual or, or more of a, a rarity or scarcity or whatever. And so, you know, there's pros and cons to everything, but, but there's no question that, you know, there were lots of hurdles and barriers that you know, I personally had to deal with. Now that you're in charge of an organization, do you do anything in particular at Carnival to try to promote a diverse group of people into leadership positions? Not only now that I'm at Carnival, but all through my career, I discovered something early on which really helped me be successful in the businesses I've been involved in. And I've been a part of transforming three industries, not, not just you know, building business or being successful in a company, but literally transforming three different industries. And in each case, the catalytic uh, driver for that was engineering diversity. Purposefully, intentionally, willfully engineering diversity on the team. And um, here's the facts. The facts are that uh, we live in a capitalistic society. The facts are communities thrive when businesses thrive. And if you go to any community where a large business, you know, failed and went out of business, it affects everything. The parks, the arts, the education, you know, everything. It affects everything in that community. Okay, you've seen towns literally die because of business, you know, went out of business. And so that's just a fact. For businesses to thrive over time, over time, 
they have to innovate. You know, either their processes, their products and services, you know, they have to innovate. Otherwise, they get passed up and become obsolete or gobbled up or whatever, okay? And um, innovation, by definition, is thinking outside the box. It's diversity of thinking. That's how you innovate. So having a diverse team of people doesn't guarantee diversity of thinking and it doesn't guarantee innovation, but it dramatically increases the probability of it. If you get a very diverse team of talented people organized around a common objective with a work process to work together, and they gotta have that because they're different from each other. So they need that process to work together. But you get that and pair them up against a homogeneous group to solution something, that diverse team will out-solution a homogeneous team almost every time. And, and it's just the value of diversity of thinking. So I have purposefully engineered diversity everywhere I go, and I did it here at Carnival as well, and it's paid huge dividends for us so far, and I'm sure it will continue to. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more from Arnold Donald, CEO of Carnival. Okay, I'm going to move on to our lightning round with some a few quick questions. Are you ready? I'm ready. Fire. Okay, meetings. Are you pro or con? How do you run your meetings? What's your philosophy on meetings? I think um, meetings are a great way to get people to ideate together. Uh, I don't think meetings always have to be in person. I think today's world with video technology, um, once you know someone, you can get a lot done through video. Uh, I like meetings to be very purposeful, okay, so you know what the intended, you know, what does a success look like for that meeting, what's the outcome you're chasing, and then I like them to be efficient because we're all super busy. Um, But I do like them because um, people can build off each other's ideas and you can, you know, uh, have, you know, true catalytic change. What mistake have you made in the past that you've learned the most from? Wow. I made a lot of mistakes. Um... I guess the one I learned the most from was um, uh, there was a business I was involved in at one time. I'll skip the details. We had a, um, uh, we needed to really get the consumer more connected with the brand. I didn't have confidence in what I saw from the ad agencies and stuff. So myself and another colleague of mine I've worked with for a lot of years and still work with, uh, we went up, recruited the director, went up to Canada, you know, cast the, TV commercial, produced it, thought it was great, brought it back, handed it to the marketing team, and then I said, I'm not going to make you run this. I just want you to test this against other things you do, and if it tests well, I expect you to run it. If it doesn't, I expect you not to. Well, you know, I was a little too hands-off. The not invented here syndrome took all over, and they went with something that was really you know, milk toast and really didn't, wasn't effective. And um, that one spot, whenever I show it to people, resonates so much with people. And, and I let them make the decision. And then, I, and then it hurt the business uh, to, to a great extent. It was a critical point in the business. And so the one lesson I learned from that was sometimes you have to stand alone and just do what you know is the right thing. Um, everything can't be a learning opportunity for your team. Sometimes you know, you, you know, the buck stops in one place and sometimes you, you got to make the call even though it's not popular and, and do what you know is the right thing. In that case, I really believed it was the right thing, but I let it go. And in that particular case, it was at such a critical time in the business, it really hurt the business. 
And um, if it wouldn't really hurt the business, you should let it go anyway so people can learn on their own. But if it's really going to damage the business, then, you know, that's why I get paid itty-bitty bucks. I, I should have stepped up and taken the responsibility. Sounds like you missed your calling as an advertising creative director, which brings me to my final question. If I told you tomorrow that you were fired and you could never again be an executive, can't be a corporate executive, you can't do anything even remotely related in any way to what you've been doing now or you've been doing in your career, what would you want to do instead with your life? So I can't be involved in business at all. Okay. If I can't be involved in business at all, then I would like to write. And um, I would write a host of things. Um, I have a children's book in my head I'd love to write. I would love to write poetry. I, I do do poetry. I, nobody's ever going to see it, but I, I do write poetry. <laughs> and then um, I have um, you know pop philosophy and just life experience stuff that I, I like to share. Not, not that it's all that unique, but it's a good expression for me, creative expression. And then if it happens to cause someone else to reflect in a way that helps them, then then I'm really happy, you know? So I would write. I hope we will see your writing someday. Uh, Arnold Donald, CEO of Carnival Corporation, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Seth. Really appreciate it. That's all for today. Who Runs That is produced by Cameron Drews and Cleo Levin. The senior producer for Slate Podcast is TJ Raphael. The editorial director for Slate Podcast is Gabriel Roth. You can email us at whorunsthat at slate.com. If you like the show, please rate and review us in the Apple Podcasts app or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Seth Stevenson. Thanks for listening.